You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. And I should say happy Easter, or more accurately, happy Resurrection Sunday to all of you. He is risen. What do you think? Try it again. He is risen. There you go. All right. And it is good to see everybody here this morning um, from all over the place. Just, just glad to have you here that we get to share this time together. Um, I can't really point to a particular scripture we're going to be in this morning, so uh, most it'll be on the screen. You'll see that when we get there. All right. So you probably noticed that the world is full of scams, deceptions, and disappointments. Maybe you get these emails, too. I get emails like this one frequently. <clears throat> My dearest... Uh, not too uh, many of them are headed that way. But anyway, greeting to you, my dear beloved. I am Mrs. Christy Walton, a great citizen of United State. I bring to you a proposal worth $9 billion, which I intend to use for charity. I am happy to know you, but God knows you better, and he knows why he has directed me to you at this point in time. So do not be afraid. I uh, let's see. I saw your email contact at Ministries of Commerce and Foreign Trade Departments. Hmm. I am writing this mail to you with heavy sorrow in my heart. It is painful now to let you know that I have been suffering from a heart disease for the past 22 years, and just a few weeks ago, my doctor told me that I won't survive the illness. My name is Mrs. Christy Walton, a great citizen of the United States of America, and I am contacting you because I don't have any other option than to tell you, as I was touched to open up to you about my project. Please reply me back. If you are interested, so I can provide you with further details, God bless you, and once again, please reply me back if you are interested, so I can provide you with further details. You ever get those emails? I mean, yeah, most of them are caught in the spam folder, once in a while one gets through. I'm tempted to write back just to discuss her grammar and writing style. (sighs) But, yeah, that said, offers for get-rich-quick schemes... Free merchandise, or airline tickets, or health and beauty secrets, secrets, abound. Many people respond to this type of ad. I love this one. Eat what you like, when you like, and lose weight the easy way. Well, sign me up. I mean, I I think that's great. Is it just me, or does she look like, have kind of a crazed look in her eyes there? Yeah, uh, chocolate-covered donuts do that to me, too. I get that look in my eyes when I... (laughs) Chocolate-covered donuts out there. And then there are the images of advertising. Here's a series of images comparing what a product looks like in the advertising to what it looks like in reality. Now, I didn't take any of these pictures, but I have, you can tell, I have enough fast food experience to say that I think they are completely accurate. So here, you see this one. There's the Taco Bell taco. Looks pretty good as advertised. Not so great in real life. (laughs) Kind of a sad taco, right? Okay. But that's got to be better than Jack in the Box tacos. I mean, you know, those two don't look too bad. 
right there. I'm not sure why you'd expect a good taco at a hamburger place, but there you are. Those, those look pretty good. These two, on the other hand, look a little less appetizing. <laughs> Looks like they got sat on in the, in the bag there. Now, hamburgers. Hamburgers don't fare much better. Here's the advertised image for Burger King's Whopper. Okay, looks good. Uh, this is what you pull out of the bag as you exit the drive-thru. Yeah. And I suppose the hope is that you'll be too preoccupied with driving to notice that it doesn't look like the picture on the menu, right? And the Whopper Junior, the Whopper Junior is similarly misrepresented. It comes out like this. Yeah. Now, but we should probably be thankful, you know, that it doesn't actually, you know, look like that. You'd never get that one in your mouth. Okay, but surely, okay, McDonald's won't disappoint us, will it? I mean, we all know this one. Two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, on a sesame seed bun, or something sort of like that. Yeah. Now, most of us probably aren't surprised by the reality compared to the advertising. I tend to look at all advertising with a skeptical eye because it seems that advertisements consistently make claims that they cannot actually deliver, or do not actually deliver. The emails promising instant wealth take it a step further, because not only are these people not going to give you any of their money, but they are also trying to scam you out of yours. There's a principle that applies to things like the diet ad, or the email promising millions, billions, and it's something we've all heard. If it sounds too good to be true, what? Yeah, it probably isn't true, is it? And isn't that the situation that we find ourselves in when it comes to Easter Sunday? I mean, we're actually supposed to believe, and Rick talked about it here, we're actually supposed to believe that Almighty God Himself, Creator of the universe and everything in it, made an appearance on planet Earth as a flesh and blood human baby who grew up to adulthood, who was executed by the Romans there in the first century, how we measure time now, because of his appearance. He was buried in a tomb from a Friday afternoon to a Sunday morning. No, I'm not going to get into the debate about whether that's accurate or not. Let's just take it at that. And that he came back to life again. Not only that, but we're supposed to believe that all this has some kind of life-changing significance for every person on the planet with some really extravagant promises for us of forgiveness from sin, our own coming back to life after we die, and eternal life forever in heaven. And when we encounter too-good-to-be-true claims in advertising or other offers, we start asking questions. Like, what's the catch? What do these people really want? Is there any good reason to believe them? Are these claims verifiable? All good questions. And they need to be asked. Because there's something else we need to recognize about things that sound too good to be true. Sometimes they are true. And that is the situation we actually find ourselves in as we face Resurrection Sunday. What are we to make of this extravagant claim? Is there any possibility that it is true? If it is true, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you? Most of us are here this morning because we do believe that the resurrection is true. But some of you may not. Or you may be undecided. If you're not yet convinced about the truth of 
Christ's resurrection, I'm asking you this morning to be open to the possibility that he really did rise from the dead. Please think about what it would mean for you, for your life here on earth, and what will happen to you after you die. If you already believe that the resurrection is true, then I hope that this morning's message will reinforce the joy, the encouragement, and the hope that you receive from knowing Jesus as your risen Lord. And maybe the things we talk about here will help you share the gospel message with others who haven't accepted it yet. It's a message that sounds too good to be true, but it really is true. This morning we're going to look briefly at four things that we could describe as can't be true, but it is. All of them have to do with what we call Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. And the first thing that we'll look at is the resurrection itself. And I'll just give you a heads up, we're going to be in Luke 24 next. So if you want to turn there, that's fine. If you don't, it'll be on the screen. The first thing we look at is the resurrection itself. And this is actually the pivotal event for everything we're going to talk about. But it's more than that. The resurrection is the pivotal event for everything we believe. It's the pivotal event for all of Scripture. If you're having a difficult time believing that Jesus Christ was crucified, buried in a tomb for three days, and then came back to life, well, that's understandable. Even his own disciples had problems believing In Luke 24, Luke tells uh, of some of the women who had been following Jesus and how they came early on Sunday morning to the tomb where Jesus was buried. They came to finish preparing Jesus' body for burial since there had not been time on Friday afternoon before the Sabbath began. And they would not do anything they regarded as work on the Sabbath, which had ended on Saturday evening. So Sunday morning was the first opportunity they had to finish putting the burial spices on Jesus. Now, the tomb was not like the ones we're familiar with. It was more like a a room carved out of the rock. What Matthew calls an extremely large stone sealed the opening. And Mark tells us that the women were concerned about how they were going to move the stone so they could get to Jesus to finish the burial preparation. But all the gospel writers say, that the stone was not over the opening to the tomb when the women arrived. And Matthew provides the detail that an angel was responsible. There were at least two angels there, and at least one of them spoke to the women, telling them that Jesus had risen from the dead just as he said he would. And the angel told the women to go and tell the rest of Jesus' disciples that he had risen. No problem, right? Luke 24, verse 10. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James, also the other women with them, were telling these things to the apostles. He is risen. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. Now you would think, at least I would think, that if anyone would be willing to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead, it would be his own disciples. Jesus had told them plainly, that he would be crucified, and that he would rise from the dead on the third day. The disciples had seen Jesus die. So the only hope they could possibly have that he really was the promised Messiah was if he actually did rise from the dead. Yet their first response to the news that he had was that the women were speaking nonsense, and the disciples did not believe, at least not yet. 
a little later, Jesus approached two of his disciples who were traveling to a village about seven miles from Jerusalem. Jesus asked them what they were talking about. And Luke 24, 17 says that they stood still looking sad. Not exactly the demeanor of those who have just heard the the best news ever, right? They didn't recognize Jesus yet. So they explained to him that they had been hoping that this Jesus was the Messiah who would redeem Israel. But he had been crucified. They said that it was now the third day since that happened, indicating, I think, that they remembered his promise to rise from the dead. They even mentioned the story told by the women about seeing angels who said Jesus had risen from the dead. But it was clear to Jesus that these men did not yet believe. On later in Luke 24 there, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. The Gospel of John then tells us that Jesus appeared to ten of the remaining eleven disciples. You remember Judas went out and and, uh, hung himself, but there, there were eleven. But he appeared to ten of them, those ten who were closest to Jesus. But Thomas... Thomas, one of the original 12, Thomas was not there. We know him as Doubting Thomas. This comes from John chapter 20, if you head it that way. We know him as Doubting Thomas because of his reaction when the 10 disciples told him about seeing Jesus. Verse 24 of John chapter 20. But Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord! But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Believing in the resurrection is not something that comes automatically, even to those people who knew Jesus personally and who were closest to him during his earthly existence. But when they finally came to the point of belief, when they finally accepted that Jesus had truly risen from the dead, nothing could shake them from that belief. If you go to 1 John, late in the New Testament there, just a couple of pages left of Revelation, 1 John chapter 1, here is the Apostle John's testimony about why he believed. 1 John 1, the first three verses. What was from the beginning... What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, We proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John makes it clear that his belief in Jesus was based on his personal experience. He says, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John and the rest of those disciples experienced Jesus firsthand. They proclaimed the truth and fact of the resurrection because they were there and they witnessed it themselves. 
Now, that belief didn't come easy for them. And I don't think we should expect belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ to come easy to anyone. But when we examine the eyewitness accounts of those who were there, those who struggled themselves with believing, even though they were the ones you'd expect to believe the easiest, we can see the truth in what they were finally convinced of. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead just as he said he would. It sounds like it can't be true, but it is. Another thing that sounds too good to be true is the idea of having all our sins completely forgiven. There are many scriptures telling that Jesus' sacrifice His crucifixion, his death on the cross, was necessary to atone for our sins. But what about his resurrection? Is there a connection between the resurrection of Jesus and our forgiveness of sins? And I'd have to say you uh, boys in the high school, uh, Sunday school class, got a taste of this last week when Nate taught your class. If I understand correctly, this was the message he brought to you, that these two things are both together. Well, I'll tell you the same thing, but let's... We'll go through it my way today. Okay. Absolutely there's a connection between the resurrection of Jesus and and our forgiveness of sins. And 1 Corinthians 15 has so much to say about it. 1 Corinthians 15 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. The entire chapter revolves around the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in verses 16 and 17, Paul makes a direct connection between the resurrection of Jesus... And the forgiveness of our sins. Apparently, some question had come up in Corinth about whether there would be a resurrection from the dead for Christians. And this is what Paul said about that in verses 16 and 17 of 1 Corinthians 15. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Whatever else we want to believe or think, even if we accept that Jesus died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice, Paul says that if he didn't rise from the dead, then we are still in our sins, unforgiven and condemned. The resurrection was necessary for our sins to be forgiven. Now, you might remember the story from the Gospels, it's in Luke chapter 5, Matthew chapter 9, Mark chapter 2. But the story that I'm talking about is, is the story about the paralyzed man whose friends brought him to Jesus, but because Jesus was in a house and there were so many people crowding around, they couldn't get in to see Jesus. You remember that story? Anybody remember this story I'm talking about? The paralyzed man and Jesus is in the house and they can't get in to, get to see him. And so these friends that brought their, the paralyzed man to see Jesus, they broke a hole in the roof of the house and they let their friend down uh, to Jesus in that way. I love that story because, you know, I want friends like that. But anyway, what was the first thing Jesus said to that man after his friends are, you know, his friends are standing there on the roof looking down there, wonder what Jesus is going to say to him. Well, what did Jesus say to him? He said, your sins are forgiven. It wasn't even why the guy came there. Your sins are forgiven. And you remember how there were some scribes and Pharisees there who thought to themselves, oh, Jesus is committing blasphemy by claiming to forgive sins. No one can forgive sins but God alone. You might remember how Jesus responded to their thoughts. He said, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or get up and walk. 
But here's what I'll do to show you that I have the power to forgive sin. And then he healed the paralyzed man who immediately got up and walked. And I bring that up because that's another thing that the resurrection does. It proves that Jesus has the power to forgive sin. If we come to the point of believing that the resurrection is true, then we can come to the point of believing that our sins can be forgiven. Back again to 1 Corinthians 15. Perhaps you're still there. Here's a couple more verses, verses 19 and 20. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and everything that we have to do with Jesus concerns his teachings about how to live and how to treat each other and how to love people. And that's all that we have from him. That there's nothing else. I, I'm, I'm interpolating. I'm, I'm putting things into this because I'm trying to express what I think Paul's getting at. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Christ has been raised from the dead, so our sins can be forgiven. And that's important. Because when we really understand what sin is, and when we really understand how offensive our sin is to God, and how it separates us from Him, again, what Rick talked about this morning, the idea that our sins could ever be forgiven sounds like it can't be true. But thanks to Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, it is true. Well, it's one thing to believe and to say that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. But how is it that we could possibly look forward to a resurrection of our own? What makes us think that we could ever rise from the dead like Jesus did? Well, in Romans chapter 6... Paul explains exactly how it is that we can expect a resurrection for ourselves. Starting in verse 3 of Romans 6, he says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Paul's really talking about two different kinds of renewal there. And we talked about this when we went through Romans recently, uh, Romans 6 recently. Not going to go through all that again. You can study that out on your own. But did you catch here what the premise is for our resurrection? The premise for our resurrection is his resurrection. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, not only are we still dead in our sins, but we also have no hope of a resurrection of our own. His resurrection is the promise of our resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 has some details about that. Starting in verse 42, Paul says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Uh, more than 45 years ago, yeah, I know. More than 45 years ago, when I was six or seven years old, 
my dad did a lot of traveling around speaking at different churches. And my sisters and my brother and I were forced, I mean, uh, given the opportunity, we were given the opportunity to go along and sing together before dad did his speaking or showing slides or whatever it is he was doing at that church that evening. Now, there's a couple of things you need to know about me when I was six or seven. First off, I was a portly kid, more so then than I am now even. And second, I could still sing the high parts. <laughs> uh, maybe not as high as rain. I don't know. But anyway, yeah, I could still sing the high parts. There was a song we used to sing called, I'll Have a New Life. And when we got to the chorus, I was supposed to lead off with, I'll have a new body. And then we'd all sing together, praise the Lord, I'll have a new life. Right? So we were up in Columbia Falls one night. And in Columbia Falls, there was a man named Frank Caldwell. Dan knows Frank pretty well. Uh, Frank was an old friend of my dad's from years and years and years gone by now. Frank came around afterward, and he said to me, at that time, the portly six-year-old, he said, it's a good thing you're going to have a new body because you're going to need one. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Thank you, Frank. More than you know, buddy. More than you know. Here's a news flash. We're all going to need a new body. And that's what Paul promises there in 1 Corinthians 15. Instead of the perishable, dishonorable, weak, natural body we have now, we're going to have an imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual body. And praise the Lord for that. I'll speak that on your behalf as well as mine, but I'm mostly talking about me. Praise the Lord that we'll have that new body. It sounds like something that can't be true, but it is. And if we can reach the point of believing in Christ's resurrection, if we can understand that we can have our sins forgiven, if we can believe in the promise of our own resurrection, well then accepting the idea of our eternal life shouldn't be much of a stretch. But just because it seems logical at that point, does that really make it so? Now, we're going to quote John 3.16. This is from the New American Standard Version here. Uh, I feel like I don't even have to put it up on the screen, but this morning, I'm going to put it up there, and I'd like us all to say it together. There it is on the screen. If you don't mind, with me now, here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life is promised and given and assured to those who have believed in Jesus Christ. And this belief includes believing that he is risen from the dead. Back to 1 John, this time from chapter 5. Toward the end of 1 John, John wrote about the assurance of eternal life. 1 John 5.13, he explains the reason for writing that particular letter. At least one of the reasons. He says in 1 John 5.13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's assurance. That's not just a promise. Well, you're going to get that someday. This is assurance. These things I have written to you who believe, already believe, in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have 
eternal life. Now I hope that you will read the entire book of 1 John to explore what it is that provides that assurance of eternal life. But if you go back one verse to verse 12, you read this. He who has the Son, now that's Jesus, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. If you have Jesus, his power at work in you, his likeness seen in you, his mind directing you, if you have Jesus, then you can know that you have eternal life. Sounds like it can't be true, but it is. Today we talked about four things. We said that Christ's resurrection is true. We said that our sins are forgiven, and I would say can be forgiven in Christ if we have that saving faith in Him. Our resurrection is promised, and our eternal life is assured. Now, of those four things, in my opinion, Christ's resurrection is the most important. The others follow from that. And if you can believe that Christ has risen from the dead, then you can believe the others as well. And that's the whole point of the gospel message. The good news about the truth of the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ has been revealed to us and preserved for us for a purpose. After John wrote in his gospel about Jesus' resurrection, he wrote this from John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. My question to you is, do you believe the testimony that's been given about Jesus rising from the dead? Do you believe that he is the Savior that he claims to be? Do you believe that because he rose from the dead, your sins can be forgiven? You can also rise from the dead when he returns, and that he can guarantee you eternal life in heaven with him? Do you believe all those things? If you have come to that point of faith... And you have never accepted Christ previously as Lord and Savior. If you've come to that point of faith and you want to accept the benefits that Christ's resurrection offers, I'd ask you to come forward as we sing our invitation song.